last month on the Sonic Truth Dynasty podcast. Nate loves killing players. It's one of his favorite activities on this show. And Austin Carr had a 46% dominator rating in the Big Ten. Holy shit. Oh, yeah, he's a, he's a stud. He's a stud? Jesus, you fly off to the extreme and like, that was like a minute. And Hey, Amendola, hey, Amendola, you see that Amendola catch over there? Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, Amendola, yeah, it was a good catch there, yeah, oh, yeah. And Wow, you updated the show sheet before the show? That's what I do. How did that feel when you went into the show sheet? Was it creepy having never been there before? I didn't even know how to get here. And It's the best way to go out on a sweatpant boner. And Is this the time when you think people start masturbating to the show? What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Sonic Truth Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Liss. You can find me on Twitter at an outraged Jew. And with me, as always, is Mr. Matt Kelly. You can find him on Twitter at fantasy underscore mansion. And I don't know why I'm laughing. I see Matt's face right now. There's a heavy lead in before the show started. I don't know where this episode's going. We haven't recorded in what feels like six weeks. You're a hired What's gun. Up? You're a self-described a hired gun. That's right. I am. I am. Do you remember the rap that you laid down last week? I do. I don't know if everybody if everybody had heard it. It seems like a lot of people did. Yeah, I do oh, remember Oh, they that. heard it. Based on the numbers, looking at the downloads, they heard mm, it. Mm. It's good to hear, man. I always appreciate when people catch the rap and uh, deliver props for it. I, I like to get in there and mix it up every once in a while on behalf of the show. Yeah, you don't have haters. I have lots of haters. All you have are listeners ready to fire off the attaboy on social mm. media. You had a lot of attaboys, mm. didn't you? When you're, you did, yeah. didn't you? You're shaking your head yes, you did. Yeah, it was. It was It was fantastic, man. Everybody was coming out, giving props. It's funny because I don't know what time you posted that episode, but it seemed like almost immediately people were giving me props on that, and I'm like, how fast do you listen to the episode? It's like Our audience is amazing. This is how great listening. our audience is. If I post an episode at 1.30 a.m., and I refresh the screen after five minutes, it has well over 100 downloads. Wow. Like, there are people out there in different time zones, on different sleep schedules, and they're just ready to hit play the moment an episode drops, no matter when, where they are. It's amazing. Such a great audience, and they appreciated you. I appreciated how you channeled Eminem for that particular rap. Something, you remember what yeah. you said to channel Eminem? I, I don't. Do you remember the line? Is this the uh, the Matt Berry related line? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Do you remember what know. it was? Uh, not off the top of my head exactly. I don't know. Do you? It's uh, something copyright, copyright, trademarked, and patented. I don't remember. Yeah, the yeah, line. yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. He's like, you, uh, nobody owns that shit. That's how you end. You ended it with nobody owns that shit. That's right. Hey, copyright patented. You went through the whole list. You went through the whole litany of different ways that you can protect intellectual property. You had trademark, patent, copyright, and it was just like, oh my, oh, oh my. I remember when I heard that 
string of terms, I thought, oh, God. Oh, oh, this is fire. Oh, 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 the fire is raining down. Oh, poor Matthew Barry. He just wanted to chime in on Twitter and get a little bit of the applause. He wanted to be a part of the pity party. (laughs) Matt Barry just wanted to show up with some drinks and some gifts and be part of the pity party. And he had no idea that you were lurking with a flamethrower. Right. You show up to the pity party with a six pack of Zima, you're going to get hit in the mouth. And that's exactly what took place. Oh, you know, totally see Matthew Barry drinking Zima. That makes perfect sense. Now you're never exactly thrilled with any of these raps that's what i want the audience to realize that nate doesn't really like the final product and here's why nate prefers to rap over a beat but the way we do it on the sonic truth is nate raps a cappella, and i add the beat later just for expediency and because we're not in the same studio he's in oregon i'm in connecticut so we have to compromise and that's one of the compromises unfortunately those that have a good ear for hip-hop when they listen to these raps they see there's a little bit that the rap is lacking some synchronicity and nate is self-conscious about that are you not yeah absolutely i mean all the time pretty much my whole life when i've battled or made songs it's always on time it's always to the beat um so yeah when you hear it like that and it's not on time because really i'm not i'm not writing to a beat and i'm conscious of my uh syllables my total count of them you know because if you do too many in one line it can sound odd it's just like staring at something on a wall like a shelf if it's crooked you're gonna notice if you do a line you overrun on one side it sounds imbalanced so anyway the carpenter would notice so you're the craftsman (laughs) and the carpenter would notice and i've become more and more stimulated by the craft of making music The craftsmanship that goes into songwriting and song creation, it's been something that has stimulated me recently. And I think I've mentioned this on another show, that where I live in Connecticut, I'm surrounded by musicians, live near the Talking Heads. There's a a great band called Alternative Route that's in the area, and they come to my daughter's school, and they do, do a clinic, music clinic, which is great. And a couple of the dads in my daughter's school were former musicians. They've now gone on to other careers, but they were musicians in the 90s, some of them bands we know. And it's great. I love to pick their brain about music. And a question I always ask musicians, and I've been driving at it, it's been a perpetual curiosity of mine for many years, is how do you write a song? Like, how does a song come to be? And particularly a rock song. So I've started to learn the mechanics of writing rock songs. And I think I've figured it out. So follow me for a minute. Going down a musical rabbit hole. And then once I explain how I think rock songs are created, the most popular ones anyway, you can explain the ideal process for creating a hip-hop song. What do you think of that? All right, let's do it. Now, this is just my opinion based on my observations. This is not an absolute truth. Creating a great, popular rock song is counterintuitive to start. You break it out into four pieces. The first piece is the hook, which is the music that's playing during the chorus. You have the chorus lyrics. Then you have the rhythm music, and you have the verse lyrics. And the rhythm music is typically playing during the verse lyrics. And then you have the solo. We'll put that off to the side because a solo is optional, can be non-existent, can be very long if you're familiar with bands like Fish where it's just basically a short song and then a long solo. And then other bands have little to no solos. So put the solo off to the side. Think about the four pieces 
the two written pieces and the two musical elements. Songs begin with a riff. The music that's playing during the chorus is typically the first piece that's created. That requires what I would call true artistic inspiration, an idea sparking in an artist's mind for a new way to string together musical notes in a way that enraptures, where everyone in the band and the producers, they hear it and they go, oh, you're onto something. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, I like that. Tickling the, the sensors in my brain that pick up music. And the brain is wired in a way to love music because our minds are always looking for patterns. We're attracted to patterns. We want to see patterns and then identify what we believe is the next piece of the pattern. That's why we sing along to songs because we, oh, we recognize the pattern and we want to repeat it and that soothes our mind. So the hook is critical. Without the hook, the music that's playing during the chorus, you really don't have a song. But what's interesting is once you have the hook, the musical element, the next piece that's written is typically the lyrics to the verse. And that is another artistic component, a purely artistic component that requires this flash of insight because that's poetry. That's the poetry element of the song. So that's why singer-songwriters are considered poets, like Bob Dylan, where his verses are sublime. They strike a different chord in your mind, in that place where you can think comprehensively tickles those sensors. So then once you have that, then you lay the rhythm music under the verse. And you can see the song starting to come together. The rhythm music under the verse is typically the easiest. Most professional musicians can put something like that together pretty quickly. Again, I am generalizing. There are certainly songs where the rhythm section is exceptionally difficult to execute and super creative. I understand that. I'm just talking generally. But here's where it gets very tricky. And here's the piece that makes or breaks a song. The hook brings a song to life, but the wrong chorus can put it off on the shelf. The chorus has to be perfect. The chorus lyrics are not what I would consider purely artistic. I believe they're much more mechanical. They're much more analytical because there is a very specific way to structure the wording of a chorus to get the syllables to flow perfectly, to get the words to flow in line with the riff in a way that tickles the brain so much that you want to hear that song over and over and over again. And this is where most musicians fail. The first three they've got down. They got their great riff. Then they had a poem all written and they lay that rhythm music down. And then when it comes to writing the chorus, they fail time and time and time again. And it's what keeps many bands unknown. It's the reason they don't break out is because they never learn the finer aspects of writing a chorus that will lead a song to get wide airplay, to become popular, not just on the radio, but on YouTube and all these other places. You have to get the syllables perfect and the cadence perfect. And the key is to stop worrying about the words. You can say everything you want to say in the verse. That's where you can do your poetry. The best bands don't worry so much about the words in the chorus. They just want the damn thing to sound right. That's all they care about. Many of the most popular songs you listen to the chorus, it's kind of gibberish. It doesn't make any sense. Have you ever heard a song by the band Train? Yeah, I think I've heard a couple of them. 
It's just stream of consciousness during the chorus. He's not saying anything. Van Halen is overrated. Tell me. (laughs) See what I'm saying? Did you fall for a shooting star? It's just he's moving from one thing to the next. All he cares about is the cadence and the syllables and the rhyming. I'm sure he doesn't think Van Halen's overrated like I think Deshaun Watson's overrated. It's just that Van Halen had the precise number of syllables and the inflection in the letters of the name Van Halen. He just chose Van Halen because it fit. And Van Halen just happens to be wildly overrated also. But not as overrated as the band Train. But many singer-songwriters don't want to do that. They have a very specific vision for what they want a song to be, what they want to say, how they want to express themselves. And the idea they're just going to relegate the chorus lyrics to essentially a machine, a gibberish machine, to allow them to line up. Well, a lot of bands refuse to do that. And in that stubbornness... There's a lot of great songs that never get airplay that you and I will never hear. And the only people that know of these songs and love these songs because they're great songs are the hardcore fans of that band because it just never hooked in to the receptors in our brain because they didn't lay out the words in the chorus very well. This is why songwriting duos are so popular. Why do you think the Rolling Stones were so good? It's because Mick Jagger and Keith Richards both had roles in the songwriting. One was a craftsman, great at the mechanics. One was an artist, great at the poetry. No better example than the Beatles. Most of the Beatles' hits were John and Paul, Paul and John. And whenever a professional musician is teaching an up-and-comer, the first assignment is go listen to early Beatles records. You want to make great songs? Go listen to Introduction to the Beatles, Meet the Beatles, Hard Day's Night. Go listen to those albums if you want to make great music. And it's not just rock and roll. It's everything. It's hip-hop. It's R&B. It's rock and roll. It's everything. The elements of popular music are embedded in those particular albums. And this took me a long time to figure out what I just told you. Talking to a lot of musicians and listening to a lot of musicians interviewed because musicians are so cagey about this songwriting process. They will not lay it out to you like I just laid it out to you. Because instead, they will hide behind this notion that, well, everyone's different and there is no singular process. There's no right or wrong way. A lot of songs get written in different ways and come together in different ways and have different inspirations and different mechanics behind them. That's not true. Most of the best songs are created using the step-by-step process that I just laid out. And that's how the Beatles wrote their music. And the key that unlocked my curiosity that eventually led me to figuring this out was a biography that I watched about Nirvana. And I learned that Kurt Cobain's favorite band was the Beatles. And this was like 20 years ago. And that blew my mind because I love Nirvana. I thought, the Beatles? What? No way. I know Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain loves Thelonious Monster. Kurt Cobain's aesthetic is Thelonious Monster. He's channeling Bob Forrest. There's no way his favorite band was the Beatles. And then you go to YouTube and you pull up the video In Bloom by Nirvana. And they're channeling the Beatles. And a musician sat down and told me something. You know Nirvana is just the Beatles, right? And I said that that can't be true. That they don't sound anything alike. He's like, they don't sound anything alike? And he looked indignant. He said, Kirk Cobain was mimicking 
Paul McCartney the whole time. And I think this is this can't be right. And he said, absolutely. Look at the way the chords are structured. Look at the way the songs are structured. All Nirvana is all Nirvana songs are are highly distorted versions of Beatles songs that if you cleaned up the guitar riffs and the distortion and the grunge and you put them in black suits, they would be the Beatles. And that blew my fucking mind, which led me on this journey to figuring this out. It's amazing. So how do you write hip hop songs? It's not so different from kind of how you explained it, but a lot of times with hip hop, a lot of the rappers don't make their own instrumentals. Lots of guys don't because rapping and making beats are two vastly different things. And they're both really difficult. I mean, on the other side, you look at rock artists. Some of those guys, the drummer may or may not have the talent to help create the music. He plays the drums. He might be able to write some lyrics, but writing good lyrics is hard too. So in hip hop and with any artist, the people that I think are really the best are the ones that in their head go, okay, I thought of a topic. This is what I'd love to write about. You know, whether it's, it's something poverty related or something going on in their life or whatever it is. And in their mind, they can picture what they want it to sound like and they can construct that. Then they write to that. What happens more times than not, though, is guys will like for me, I'll start making some drums. I'll figure out kind of what I want it to be like, you know, and then from there, I'll start building around it. And once I have basically the bare bones, the rhythm, like you said, from there, I'll add layers for a chorus. And when you program it, you know, like the programs we use, it's not like rock where in hip hop, it's like 16 bars. Then there's a little something that comes in just before the hook, the chorus. Then you bring in a few more sounds for the chorus. Then you drop those same sounds back out. And so it's your rhythm is always there, right? Right. But the chorus instrumentals over the top of it. Oh, that's interesting. The chorus lyric, is that really the final piece of the puzzle? Yeah, you know, like the, the chorus, like you said, it's the most important. You know, you want it to be the catchiest. You also want the instrumental itself to add some flavor, you know, but the voice is an instrument too. And that's something that people don't often talk about. The way you use it on the chorus, you use it like an instrument. So sometimes less is more. You know, if you get a singer on there, you don't need to add, you know, symphonic sounds. You don't need to add synthesizers to it. There's just little changes and a voice can do a lot for it. But yeah, the chorus is the big one and the chorus kind of ties together the verses. It's like, what is the thesis of what this song is about? You know, what's the general idea? Sum it up in the chorus, do it a catchy way that makes people want to listen to the music. And then, yeah, in the verse, you're just telling, you're telling whatever you want to tell. That's your opportunity to be detailed, to say what you want, set it up and you know, you have three verses typically. And you can be very improvisational in the verses. Yeah. There's a lot of room for error in the verses. You can have a hit song with lots of different versions of the verse. Typically, the chorus will make or break the song. So a great example, two episodes ago on the Mind of Mansion show, we started the show with a song from Phil Collins, Take Me Home. And in that chorus, he doesn't say take me home. He says, take Take me home. He just added the extra take for no reason because he needed the syllables to line up exactly. That's why it's take, take me home. You start to listen for that in these songs, which I do now, and I'm like, oh, that motherfucker, the little tricks that you play in the chorus to get everything to line up just perfectly, and that was Phil Collins' genius. What the fuck is Susu Studio? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it sounds good. 
No Jacket Required is one of the biggest hit records ever. It was one of the dominant selling records in the 80s. Susu Studio and No Jacket Required. And it's nonsense. And it doesn't matter. Because it's all about the craftsmanship of that chorus making or breaking songs. And that's all Phil Collins did was make hit after hit after hit with that method. Well, you see it so frequently in hip hop. I mean, honestly, most of the radio music is just absolute crap. You know, there's not a lot of guys that are writing anything that's worth a shit anymore. I I like and dislike Macklemore. You know, obviously newer guy on the scene, but he actually writes some good stuff. A lot of times the stuff that you hear on the radio, and this can go for a lot of bands. You know how if you're a fan of a band, you listen to their radio music and you're like, God, why do they always play this crap on the radio? Their whole album is loaded with way better music. So people that don't listen to these artists, listen to the radio music and go, oh, this guy's terrible. You know, this song's garbage. But yeah, to your point, you write a good chorus and it doesn't, it really doesn't matter what you say in the verse. There's so many artists I listen to that are known for just using multi-syllable rhyming if you go listen to Eminem in fact a lot of people and I bet tons and tons of listeners on here are unaware that Eminem had an album before he ever had any of the albums with Dr. Dre and it's called Infinite and it's about 10 songs and he just goes off multi-syllable rhyming it doesn't make any damn sense at all not one word of it but it sounds amazing and it's like 1992 i swear to god go look it up you can find it on youtube the album is called infinite the single's called infinite and it's incredible because he just makes it sound great but he's not saying anything anything at all the song that has the most views on youtube that i've found in my browsing of youtube mostly browsing youtube to find songs that my daughter likes song by one republic called counting stars 1.9 billion views. Mm -hmm. 1.9 billion views. Go read the lyrics to One Republic Counting Stars. It's just a bunch of nothing. And my favorite part is they do the Phil Collins trick of lately I've been I've been losing sleep. Wait, there's an extra I've been in there. Oh, oh, little Phil Collins trickery. Motherfuckers, (laughs) 1.9 billion views. They're tickling the brain with that shit. They're getting paid off that. They're making you hit play again and again and again. It's while these songs get addictive. It's striking the right wavelength in the brain. Somebody's got an ear for it, though. You know, like, and, and oftentimes, too. With Oh, those people are geniuses. Those people are geniuses. Absolutely. Another great story is, so Pearl Jam does Pearl Jam 10, right? They know it's a great record because it was the right guys coming together at the right time. And they knew it was going to be a smash record. They knew it. They knew it. The guys knew it as they were recording it. But here's the funny part. They didn't know which songs would be the hits. Pearl Jam thought the two biggest hits from 10 would be Alive and Once. They didn't think Jeremy was radio worthy. (laughs) They didn't write Even Flow for a wide audience. Even Flow is about homelessness. Those were not written to be mainstream songs, yet the two biggest hits from 10 by far were Even Flow and Jeremy. Jeremy is so catchy, though. I remember when I was way younger listening to that song and the cadence of it, and the way the voice is an instrument is a perfect example in that song. Man, and then the line about the lion mashing up its teeth and chewing up the recess lady's breast or something like that. I don't know. Like That album tricked a lot of people. That album even tricked the producers. They did not think that songs with those topics, with that content would be considered mainstream, but they underestimated even the producers who knew, okay, grunge is happening. 
even they totally underestimated the power of those records. Same thing with the Nevermind record. They thought In Bloom, the song I talked about, they thought that would be the initial radio hit. No, Smells Like Teen Spirit was unexpected. They ended up releasing the songs that the band thought would be the hits as the fourth, fifth, and sixth songs off those records. It's amazing. You just don't know all the time. But then once the producers start to better understand the genre and how it's received, then all of a sudden these guys become just masters. They can listen to an album and go, okay, hit, 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 and here's how we'll structure it. And then someone will say, wait, what? Wait, what? That, that was a hit? No, no way. No way. There's even some famous examples of record companies and producers totally missing the boat on songs and making them B-sides and then those songs becoming the biggest hits. So even Led Zeppelin has a song like that. There's a Led Zeppelin song called Hey, Hey, What Can I Do? That never made it on any of their albums. And anyone that knows Led Zeppelin knows Hey, Hey, What Can I Do is one of their best songs. And the fact that that was a B-side is mind-blowing in retrospect. You know, and a lot of these you know, record labels and producers now, they use focus groups. So they'll bring in you know, right. random listeners to listen to this music and give you feedback on it. And they figure out, hey, what's the most likely to be a hit amongst the universal group of people? I was going to say, though, about the song, Jeremy, when you were talking about what um, – God, what were you – now I'm just totally losing it here – the artist you were talking about that kept doubling up their words. Phil Collins. Phil Collins. God, I can't believe I'm forgetting this. Genius. Pop music genius. The word class in that chorus, like how elongated it was. I mean, it could have been right. the same thing. Right, yeah, yeah. Right? The way you elongate a word to basically <laughs> a word becomes a full sentence. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. But I'll say it doesn't get any better than when two great musicians who are also great writers both get together. I mean, that's the secret of the Beatles. As great as George Harrison was, and you have whatever thoughts you have about Ringo Starr, it was all about Lennon and McCartney, McCartney and Lennon. The fact that you would have two geniuses coming together. in one band has rarely been seen at that kind of level. But as they aged, with every album you can see on their discography, they, as the two drift apart, you can see the songs drifting apart. So when you have a song credited to Lennon and McCartney, with every passing album, it's easier and easier to identify the song that Paul was predominantly responsible for versus John was predominantly responsible for because their taste started changing. They started going off in different directions. It used to be they were just living together and playing music all day, and they started to live separate lives and write different types of songs, and they weren't meshing like they were before. So anyone that was you know, regretting, heartbroken about the Beatles breaking up, well, it was inevitable. They had been breaking up for years before the official breakup. But they came together near the end for a song called Day in the Life, which helps to illuminate how songs are created because Day in the Life is two completely separate songs. And John was working on the song and he just didn't have a verse for it. He had this 
catchy hook, but that was all he had. He's like, I got this hook. I got this riff. I don't really have a lot else. And John was like, really? Because I wrote this song with some very train-esque stream of consciousness lyrics and a nice little rhythm section. Sounds great, but I don't have any way to tie it together. And John's like, well, I have this piece. And Day in the Life is the quintessential example of a song being written in pieces and then being put together by two guys that really were not writing songs together any longer. Woke up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. Found my way downstairs and drank a cup. And looking up, I noticed I was late. Found my coat. Go listen to that song and you'll hear exactly what I'm talking about. And I love the fact that we have yet to talk football. I mean, it makes me so happy because the feedback we get on social media is the most positive when we spend extra time away from football. The most positive feedback I've received was after my salmon grilling tips. There was so much positive feedback about the salmon grilling tips. When we give football takes... The audience just goes out anticipating us being wrong so they can celebrate us being wrong with hindsight bias. But our music takes, our food takes, are universally praised. (laughs) So we should talk about food for a minute because I've been doing some grilling and the audience is keen to know more about my grilling techniques. I got to say something first. Look, Matt and I coordinate a lot of stuff on this show, but I had no idea that we were going into grilling. So I, I'm I'm, I'm a student. I'm listening too. Get my notepad out. This is a universal rule about grilling and cooking in general. So this is not specific to fish or meat or chicken or, in my world, poultry. Okay. I don't know. It's like super pretentious. I don't know. You start hot and then you cool it down. Always start hot and cool it down. You never put food in a cold pan and then try to heat that pan up. You get your grill hot first. You get your pan hot first. You get your oven hot first. And then you can bring the temperature down. You can bring it down. Hot and bring it down. Hot and bring it down. That's a rule of cooking. And grilling... You get that grill nice and hot. I'm not talking about barbecue. Barbecue is a completely different technique where you want to let that meat barbecue for hours and get that smoke seeping into the fibers of the protein. Not barbecue. We're just talking about grilling on a traditional grill, propane, charcoal. Get it hot. Get very hot. Get that grill up to something like 500 degrees and throw that steak on there. Throw that chicken on there. Now, not fish. Doesn't apply to fish. We've talked about fish before. Go back and listen to other Sonic Truth podcasts to get our fish grilling takes, <laughs> techniques. Get in the habit when you're grilling pork, beef, or poultry. When you go to heat your grill, when you go to turn your grill on, at the same time, as a habit, go turn your oven on. Heat them up at the same time because you need to finish meat in the oven. So often, meat is overcooked because it's left on the grill too long. And it doesn't cook evenly on the grill. The grill is great for searing and locking that flavor in. You get a nice dark sear on both sides. And once you've done that, you take it off the grill and you finish it in the oven. Because when you're finishing in the oven, 
at a medium to low temperature, the chemistry inside that meat can start to work. Whatever marinade you use can start to activate. But when you just kill the meat on the grill, you're missing out on a lot of flavor and a lot of texture. So sear it on the grill, finish it in the oven. That's the Sonic Truth cooking tip of the day. Oh my God. Here's the, here's the funniest part. <clears throat> For the people that just are really not into anything but football, they're dying right oh, now. Oh, they're, they're, they're dead. Just- gone they're not even here anymore they're long gone i mean they've turned the podcast off they've probably unsubscribed but i think this show's been on long enough and people know when they see the sonic truth emblem on soundcloud and when they're looking at the description on itunes and they see it's stp and they see it's a different episode number and they see you're the host at this point they know we're giving the people what they want but we also understand that they want some football takes so what football segment are we delivering this week? We are going to deliver the movers on each team in the NFC. Next episode, we're going to do AFC. This week, we're going to talk about players that are moving up and down on teams. And it may be obvious. It may not be obvious. Dynasty movers. This is a dynasty show. Yep. And during the season, we do one show per month. And we're going to talk about the biggest movers on each team in the NFC tonight. That's a fact. And we'll see uh, at what rate of speed we do this at. Even I'm on. We're hoping to do it quickly because we've spent so much goddamn time talking about music. We have no more time left for football. So let's make it fast, Nate. All right. You want me to hit you with the team? Let's start with the NFC East, Matt. Dallas Cowboys. Who do you got? I'm down on Ezekiel Elliott. Ezekiel Elliott is moving down. He does not look like Ohio State Ezekiel Elliott. He does not look like 2016 Dallas Cowboys Ezekiel Elliott. He looks like he's gained weight. It looks like my prediction is coming true that Ezekiel Elliott is a Dwayne, that he does not dedicate his life to his craft as the great football players do, as someone like David Johnson does. I think Ezekiel Elliott would prefer to party on a parade float and pull down bikini tops. I think that's what he's most interested in. And I think we're seeing that now. The other problem with Ezekiel Elliott is that the Cowboys offensive line is not what we thought it was. It's not anything close to what it was last year, for example. And if their offensive line is deteriorating, then Ezekiel Elliott's weekly upside is deteriorating. Then his fantasy stock deteriorates. I no longer have Ezekiel Elliott in the top three in Dynasty. I have Le'Veon Bell ahead of Ezekiel Elliott, as I always have. I have David Johnson ahead of Ezekiel Elliott, as I always have. And now, now, of course, I have Todd Gurley ranked ahead of Ezekiel Elliott. I will say this on Ezekiel Elliott's behalf. Uh, In 2016, he was only targeted 39 times. So far through four games in 2017, targeted 19 times. So he's just 20 shy of all of last season's amount of targets. He has 16 receptions. He's 12th in the league. It's encouraging to see him used more in the passing game. Let me reiterate, the Dallas Cowboys offensive line has a 32.1 run-blocking efficiency grade on playerprofiler.com. That's number 28 in the league. Their offensive line has collapsed. Even the most talented running backs cannot accumulate yards and touchdowns running behind bottom five run-blocking units. Just ask Todd Gurley. All right, I got a player that I'm going to say is an up right now. That's Terrence Williams. He is 28 years old, but this year, second most targeted wide receiver on the team behind Des Bryant with 22. 17 receptions and a 77.3% receiving percentage. And if you look on playerprofiler.com, that might have a lot to do with the fact that his target separation at 
2.5 yards Woo. is number nine overall. Oh, yeah. So he's getting open for his quarterback, and he's being targeted. Right now, again, he's got 17 receptions on the year, so he's potentially pushing 80 receptions for the year. He's right around that range, so that's a good it's year. unbelievable. Oh, it's unbelievable for Terrence Williams. Terrence Williams was a mega producer at Baylor. One of the most prolific college-wide receivers of all time, and he's vastly outproducing Cole Beasley because, like last year, his snap share has greatly exceeded Cole Beasley's. So I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised by this Terrence Williams resurgence. Now, New York Giants, down arrow, should be attached to one Paul Perkins. (laughs) We told you so! (laughs) Was that a fart noise? That was a fart noise. That's Oh, let me try. Let me get in this fart noise game with you. Well, that's pretty good. Here, let me give you a flat one. Hey, it's Paul Perkins. What's up, man? <laughs> yeah, he's uh he's not been good. 1.9 yards per carry. We said on the show many times that Paul Perkins ceiling is average running back in the NFL. That's his absolute ceiling. When your absolute ceiling is average running back in the NFL and you operate on a team that historically has one of the worst run games in the NFL, you have no business on anyone's dynasty roster. And we were right. Absolutely right. So here's the thing with that being said, we're looking at other players. And as I'm going back and forth about my up here, it has to go between two running backs. Orleans Darkwa, an athletic running back, averaging 4.1 yards per carry right now. And Wayne Gallman, a player that we didn't love his athleticism. But this is a team that's 0-4. They're looking to shake something up. I said it months ago that this could be the team that gets Saquon Barkley. And hello, they're really working that way right now. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Oh, Saquon Barkley looks so good. Sublime Barkley, that's what I call him. Just get ready because this is the team that is likely to draft a running back heavy next year. Look, they went after receivers. They they went Shepard the year before. They got Evan Ingram. They added Brandon Marshall to this team. He hasn't been fantastic. It's a team that needs to look at the quarterback position, obviously, but running back is a position that they really, really, really need, and they haven't been successful with. We liked Shane Vereen. We talked about it. He's already got 15 receptions, 17 targets. He's basically putting up Terrence Williams numbers right now, but this is a team that needs a running back. So Wayne Gallman is going to get an opportunity, but Orleans Darkwa could be the guy that shoulders the load for this team going forward. Wayne Gallman's just a guy, but he's a guy on a team that needs a running back that's competent, and I think, at the very least, he's competent, and he's getting the red zone touches. Seven red zone touches is 23 in the NFL, and that was in one game. He's averaging seven red zone touches a game. If he qualified for the metric, he'd be number one in the NFL in red (laughs) zone touches per game. You need to stash Wayne Gallman if it's not too late. Now, Philadelphia Eagles... Zach Ertz is the truth. Zach Ertz is a top three tight end in Dynasty, and there's no question about it. There's no argument. There's not a plausible argument that can be put forth that would convince anyone that Zach Ertz is not a top three tight end. The question is, now with Rob Gronkowski missing another game, is Zach Ertz the best tight end in the NFL? Should he be number one? Should he supplant either Travis Kelsey, Rob Gronkowski, or both? We need to start having that conversation because he's the most heavily targeted tight end in the league and targets matter. Yeah, I don't disagree. I don't know if I'm putting him ahead of Kelsey right now, but he he certainly needs to be bumped up into that range. And if he continues to produce the way that he has, he certainly deserves to be put in that conversation. And 
The funny part about Ertz is he is not being valued like people are valuing Travis Kelsey. And Kelsey's not being valued like people are valuing Gronk. So it's a really weird set of tiers, but Ertz is still the most price-worthy tight end out of this entire group. He's cheaper than Kelsey, clearly cheaper than Gronk, and potentially outproduces both of them. Outproduced both of them in college. 31.8% dominator rating at Stanford 90th percentile. He was a more decorated tight end coming out of college than Tyler Eifert, who was in the same draft class. So it's not news that Zach Ertz is great at football. I've got an up for you right here, man. I was tweeting pretty heavily about this guy. You were. I know who you're going to say. I already know who you're going to say. I, I already know. Go ahead. I'm going to spoil it right now. It's Nelson Aguilar. Go ahead and say it. Damn right it's Nelson Aguilar. You know yeah! what? <laughs> you know what? I was telling people, look, he costs literally nothing. Literally. Teams wanted nothing to do with this Wait, guy. You, you say literally? Do you say literally? I said, literally. Wait, in normal conversation, that with no emphasis, you go literally or do you say literally? Literally. Oh, literally, okay. Literally, yeah. Literally, yeah. okay. But in this case, literally cost you literally. N- nothing, right? Nothing. Look at Nelson Aguilar this year. Let's glance over at playerprofiler.com, a fantastic of, place to get metrics on players. With lots of new metrics. Lots of new metrics. And here's a great one. Quarterback rating when targeted, number 11. Overall, target premium, number 13, fantasy points per target, number 16. It's weird, but I think Nelson Aguilar might not suck. And this is an example of a only one drop all season. Man, that was his problem in his first two seasons. That seems to have been rectified. I think we can agree that with Aguilar, a lot of times it was a confidence thing. It it was concentration drops. It was it was just a lack of confidence running routes and usage. And he just started to slip. But not all the time do players break out in year one. 2014 screwed with a lot of fantasy football players. That was an amazing draft class. And Aguilar is also a good player. Took him a little longer to put it together. Also moving into the slot didn't hurt. But it looks like Aguilar could really become a player in this offense, especially with Alshon Jeffrey on what? A a two-year deal? A one-year deal? One-year deal. Wentz needs to target him more. The Eagles are number seven in the NFL in pass plays per game, but Aguilar only has 18 targets. That needs to change. They need to bump his target share up based on his efficiency. Now, Washington, everybody's down. I mean, just everybody. It's like you dropped a bomb on Washington. Not that anyone would want to do that. Kim Jong-il is listening. Don't do that. Please don't do that. That was a figure of speech. But that's essentially what's happened. Figuratively. Figuratively. Kirk Cousins, down. Samaj P. Ryan, down. Rob Kelly, down. Terrell Pryor, down. Josh Doxson, way down. Jamison Crowder, way down. Jordan Reed, down. The only player who's up is Chris Thompson. So you have seven down players, one up player. It's a catastrophe. Everybody's down. But... I mean, Chris Thompson is exciting. Uh, If you held on to Chris Thompson, despite a lack of usage last year in the passing game, where he was a poor man, Shane Vereen, the last thing you want to be is a poor man, Shane Vereen, even in PPR leagues, where he's just not getting to that 10 points per game threshold, inconsistent, volatile week to week. Sometimes you're getting nine fantasy points. Sometimes you're getting one. No one wanted to start Chris Thompson last season. It was demoralizing. So to see him roar back this year and to be this featured weapon and to turn in splash play after splash play. I love it because I love satellite backs. I love fast and elusive running backs making plays in space. Nothing makes me happier. You know I have a type at the running back position. Chris Thompson is my type. 
So I am happy for Chris Thompson, and I'm loving his usage and happy to pay an iron price for Chris Thompson in trade. Talk about buy high. I'm fine buying high on Chris Thompson right now because I don't see the usage slipping. I think that they've installed the game plan with heavy Chris Thompson targets, and there's no reason to think that's going to change because the other players around Chris Thompson have collapsed. Okay, I will say this about Chris Thompson. He definitely looks like Dion Lewis two years ago right now, the way he's making plays for this offense. Yes. Great comp. Yes. I love that comp. Yes. He's NFC Dion Lewis with working knees. I am not totally done with Terrell Pryor. I'm not selling Terrell Pryor. He hasn't been efficient. He's the most targeted receiver in this offense. But there is one thing. That Wait, so you're just, just holding Terrell Pryor? This is an up or down segment, Nate. He's he's clearly down. Did you hear the premise? It's up or down. There was no down the middle choice. Look, I, I will say this. Okay, all right, fine. He's down, but going back to what you said a couple teams ago, the volume is there. So he's down butt. You have him down butt. Yeah, he's down butt. He's, he's down, down butt. butt. He, here's, here's a question for you. Again, Kim Jong-il, don't get any ideas. Don't send it to Oregon. Here's what makes me laugh. I see the name Vernon Davis. You tweeted something the other day about how you have to... Oh, Vernon Davis is up. I forgot about Davis. Davis is way up. He's up like an erect penis. How do you tackle Vernon Davis? Just out of curiosity. There's only one way to tackle Vernon Davis. Everybody knows, Nate, it's by the penis. <laughs> Because there was an actual play in the NFL when he was on the 49ers five years ago where he was literally, literally tackled by the penis. Oh, man. I mean, they, the medical staff ran onto the field because they, <laughs> everyone on the sideline was watching in horror as the defender reached up and grabbed his schlong and just dragged him to the ground by his schlong. Uh, it was football. Yeah. When I watch that clip, I just think, oh, football. Oh. Yeah, God, that's that is good. That's good by any means necessary, really. Football. They don't care. These guys are gladiators. It's blood sport. Uh, what do you think's gonna happen? Of course, the guy's gonna get dragged down by the penis. Should be. No one should be surprised by this. By you like should be ready for that. You need to be ready. That's the coach. You can see the coach after the game, right? You gotta be ready for that, Vernon. <laughs> Gotta have your head on a swivel. Game ball for the dick tackle. Pass that out. I don't know who got it that game, but take a man down by his schlong. That's impressive. Nate, Nate, Nate. Let me say that again. Gotta have your head on a swivel. I don't know what's going on. What I don't know what to say to that. What do you want me to say? Gotta have your head on a swivel. You gotta have your head on a swivel. I don't know what that's that is that related to the to the dick, I guess. I don't know what's going on here. Yes, the part of the dick is the head. Well, a portion of it is, yes. It's a double entendre. You know what a double entendre is? Yes, I do. Here's the thing. Hopefully it's not the main portion. If it is, that's a problem. But here, let's let's move. What are you talking about? Let's move to the NFC North. Can we talk about the Chicago Bears? Who do you have up in Chicago? There's only one up. Mm. It's Tariq Cohen. Oh, all the Tariq Cohen. Tariq Cohen was a fourth round pick in Dynasty rookie drafts. If Dynasty rookie drafts were to happen today, he would go in the first round. That's the definition of an up player. He looks like Darren Sproles. Every 10 years, a Darren Sproles archetype comes along. Incredibly small, 5'6", under 180 pounds. Makes Chris Thompson look like a sumo wrestler. That's the name of the show right there, Chris Thompson Sumo Wrestler. So yeah, I love Tariq Cohen. He's more efficient than Jordan Howard. The more they get the ball to Tariq Cohen, the better they will be as an offense. 
buy high on Tariq Cohen. How about you? I'm with you. There's not a whole lot of guys in this offense that I'm really up on. I got to say, Kendall Wright, for those of you that added him when this entire wide receiver group just exploded. I mean, it was shrapnel everywhere. Kevin White went full Kevin White. Yeah, Kevin White did Kevin White. He did Kevin White things. He did. And pour one out for Cameron Meredith. It's been weeks since I thought about Cameron Meredith, but I love Cameron Meredith, and Cameron Meredith is in my thoughts and I am stashing him on the IR and the nice thing with Cameron Meredith is he was hurt in the preseason so the odds that he's back 100% fully ramped up ready to go and contribute at a high level in week one of next season much higher because he experienced the injury over the summer rather than later in the season so that's the one silver lining with this Cameron Meredith situation now Detroit Lions think we can agree Amir Abdullah is happening Amir Abdullah is up and Amir Abdullah is breaking out in the quietest way possible which is interesting because he broke out originally in the most spectacular way possible with vividness bias we saw the big plays in preseason and he rose up draft boards in Amir Abdullah's rookie season he started off being drafted in round 10 in seasonal leagues by the end of August he was being drafted in the fourth round the word hype train originates with Amir Abdullah's rookie season now there is no hype train It's just a player stringing together fantasy viable weeks in a workmanlike fashion. He's having a, Amir Abdullah is having a high quality, very un-Amir Abdullah-like season. It's fascinating. There's not a lot of players on Detroit outside of Abdullah that I love. I liked what Kenny Galladay did once this year. He had he had one great game. Kenny Galladay's not up, man. Kenny Galladay was up in the preseason. He's not up during the regular season. We talked about Kenny Galladay already. What about a down guy? There's one guy who's way down. Can you just mention him? He's way down. I mean, it's like an elephant in the room at this point. I don't, you need to mention the guy on the Lions okay. who's way down. It's like if, the lion in the room. If I say his name, his first name, and his last name, would that be alliteration? Is this who we're talking about? Yes, just okay. say his name. His dynasty stock has completely imploded. He's now getting outsnapped by Darren Fells. Oh my God. And I'm willing to call it. I'm going to say it. It's over for this guy. That it's over. I'm going to say it. That it is over. That by the end of the season, his dynasty stock will be at zero. You want a fart noise? He's heading to zero. I'm going to say his name. You do a fart noise. Oh, yeah, sure. Eric Ebron. <laughs> That one came in with a lot of energy. Might need a wet wipe. We should change Eric Ebron's headshot on Player Profiler to that poop emoji. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Maybe that's the name for a show, Eric Ebron poop emoji. That's a good one, too. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Yeah, he's he's slipped. I mean, clearly. Yeah, he slipped. (laughs) He slipped. He's slipped from top 10 to zero. I don't know what to say, man. Golden Tate is the only other guy in this offense besides Abdullah that I'd even be going after. I mean, super heavily targeted, ton of receptions. It's not much to say on behalf of this offense. Well, the Green Bay Packers have Aaron Jones. Oh, Aaron Jones. Oh, it's going to happen. Please, please. 
Please, Ty Montgomery. Love you, Ty Montgomery. Have you in a high-stakes league. Need you. Really do. Please. But I want healthy Ty Montgomery for the playoff run. I want Aaron Jones to start this week. I want to see what Aaron Jones can be with an 80% opportunity share playing in the Green Bay system against the Dallas Cowboys. I want to see this so bad. We talked about Aaron Jones on numerous shows throughout the offseason. One of our favorite rookie running backs. I was offended when he fell to the fifth round, but was balanced out by the gratitude that he was drafted by an efficient offense not banished to some nowhere franchise. So thankfully, Aaron Jones is now on the Green Bay Packers and found a way to ascend to the top of the depth chart because of injury. And when you have a player like Aaron Jones with a 47% dominator rating, 87th percentile burst, 86th percentile agility score, great athleticism across the board, college dominance, high usage in the passing game, you check all those boxes, you put that player in that system, in that situation, that's the upside that fantasy football enthusiasts dream about. Talk about a free square running back that comes along once in a while in any given week. A player with a tremendous profile across the board, checking all the boxes, and moves into a starting role where he can command an 80% opportunity share, no timeshare, just Aaron Jones, the backfield to himself. Well, that situation is upon us this weekend. Ty Montgomery, please rest those ribs. They're broken. Let them heal. Jamal Williams, please rest that knee. It's sprained. Let it heal. Let Aaron Jones run! <laughs> Gosh. The only other player, I mean, there are good players in this entire lineup, but the one guy that's really shredding it right now, Jordy Nelson. Yes. He's on fire, for God's sakes. Jordy Nelson's stock is way up because we weren't sure what Jordy Nelson was going to be, how he was going to age, and it turns out he's aging really well. He's on pace for 20 touchdowns, Nate. That's what Jordy Nelson does. I'm not surprised. He's the great white hope. It's amazing. I mean, but that's amazing. So you can imagine Jordy Nelson as he ages, slowing down, less of those fast twitch muscle fibers, still scoring double-digit touchdowns just by standing out there. He could be the Antonio Gates of wide receivers, just standing in the end zone somewhere, waiting for the ball to flutter his way. He's he's absolutely incredible, and he's the ageless wonder, man. 32 and a half years old, and the guy's playing at an elite level once again. And that's all he's done for the past couple of years, so I'm just not surprised by this, but he is absolutely trending upward. And I don't know if you can even get him because he's such a short-term ownership. You just don't know. I mean, like we're talking about, does he go the Fitzgerald route, play two more years, three more years, maybe kick inside of the slot, and I don't know, just stand there like you said, or is there going to be a huge cliff? I, I don't know. I think he can continue to play and produce, yeah. and he's not that expensive, but... Aaron Rodgers is the fountain of youth. Now, the Vikings, I think everybody's up. Diggs up. Adam Thielen, way up. I think you could even argue that Dalvin Cook is up. I think that even with a torn ACL, what Dalvin Cook showed us, that savant running style, those incredible instincts, the best instincts in the class, Whoa. he showed that to us through the first four weeks. Having demonstrated that, I think that that outweighs the fact that he has a torn ACL. The health concerns, to me, are less than 
the concerns about his athleticism coming into the season. So I even think Dalvin Cook post-ACL injury is way up. Sam Bradford's up post-knee injury as well because now Sam Bradford is demonstrating efficient quarterback play where he can make these money throws time and time again. That's not the Sam Bradford we're accustomed to seeing. So for that reason, his value increases. Latavius Murray's value has increased because now he's the de facto starter. But my favorite of all these guys, the guy that I think has the highest ceiling in the backfield by far and away, Jarek McKinnon. Jarek McKinnon is the most athletic running back in the league, and he's been snake bitten. First two seasons in the league, one of the most efficient running backs. Then when he finally gets an opportunity, it's in the worst possible circumstances because all the offensive linemen on the Minnesota Vikings, every single one, went out for the year. And even with no offensive line at the end of the season, Jarek McKinnon persevered through injury, and he was one of the most productive running backs in Week 17 of 2016. Go to the game log on playerprofiler.com, click on the 2016 tab, scroll down, what do you see? 26 fantasy points for Jarek McKinnon in Week 17, 110 total yards, two touchdowns, and nine evaded tackles at the end of a lost season. Why? Because Jarek McKinnon is good at football. And B, Jarek McKinnon loves the game. So he's good at his profession and he loves what he does. And players that are wired the way Jarek McKinnon is wired and possess Jarek McKinnon's athleticism almost never fail at the NFL level. Can we please go back to Dalvin Cook for a second? How many days? The 727 three cone? Are you, are you ready to admit that you perhaps were wrong on Dalvin Cook? I liked Dalvin Cook pre-combine. I love Dalvin Cook's college resume. The combine was a red flag. I needed to see him running in an NFL offense to prove to me that he could overcome his lack of athleticism. And sure enough, he did that. I'm not accepting that. Here's the thing. There was a Roto World mock in which I drafted Dalvin Cook with the fifth pick. I'm not a Dalvin Cook hater. There were certain players that I was hypercritical of throughout the pre-draft process, throughout the summer. We know who they are. Deshaun Watson, Joe Williams, Jamal Williams, Cooper Cup, Zay, Zay Jones. Jones. We know these players. I have my hand raised whenever these players come up. I was much lower on these players than consensus. I have since been proven wrong on Cooper Cup, but I haven't been proven wrong on Dalvin Cook. I had a wait-and-see approach with Dalvin Cook. My official position on Dalvin Cook was that he was an enigma running back, that his college production did not align with, with his athleticism. It gave me pause. For that reason, I was drafting Christian McCaffrey, not Dalvin Cook. But it wasn't like I was out here drafting Leonard Fournette instead of Dalvin Cook. That wasn't my take. No. I've always said from the beginning... Throughout the summer, the Dalvin Cook was a top five pick in Dynasty rookie drafts. So no, I was not dismissive in any way of Dalvin Cook. That's a mischaracterization of my position. I was cautious, and those fears have been addressed and resolved. The problem is that now his price tag is way up. So for those of you that bought Dalvin Cook, that's a pat on the back for you. Despite the 7.27 that I was receiving for months. And there were people that were sending it to me on their own. Like they thought that was so funny. They were sending it to me. I was on like auto tweet every morning from like 20 people. That's right. I did that for yeah 
20 days. It went on for a while. Every morning at 7 a.m., you received a tweet that just read, Dalvin Cook read a 7273 cone. Oh, my gosh. All right, we're moving. But I'm also on record on the Yahoo Draft Show for round two. I was bullish on Dalvin Cook, and the analysts from Yahoo disagreed with my position because of his athleticism. In fact, they were perplexed about why I was enthusiastic about Dalvin Cook's potential in the NFL, given his athleticism. My answer was, you don't run for that many yards, and you're not that active in the passing game if you don't have an all-purpose skill set. You just don't see that. You rarely see a player be that productive if he can't play football. It's just, it's not plausible. And sure enough, he demonstrated incredible instincts. He had that je ne sais quoi factor. He knew exactly how to time his cuts and slide through creases and crevices to maximize the yards blocked and get the most out of every run play. That was the Dalvin Cook signature through four weeks, and it's a shame that he's hurt. All right, let's go rapid fire on the rest of these because we have quite a few left to do. All right, hit me with this one. Atlanta Falcons. I'm down on Julio Jones. Julio Jones is over. He's Calvin Johnson 2.0. And when Calvin Johnson was 28 years old, Calvin Johnson posted a mere 1,000 yards and under 10 touchdowns. Julio Jones will never reach the ceilings that we have laid out for him to touch. Fantasy gamers want Julio Jones to be Julio Jones of yesteryear. And 2014 Julio Jones is not walking through that door. Was that rapid fire enough for you? Yeah, that was rapid fire. All right, let's try the next one. New Orleans Saints. Willie Sneeds, way down, way down. I mean, way down. We talked about Jamison Crowder earlier. I call Jamison Crowder one of the best values in all of Dynasty League football at the wide receiver position. I am trending catastrophically wrong on Jamison Crowder, and I'm trending even more wrong on Willie Sneed because they refuse to play him. They don't even want him on the field. They have no use for him. The Saints have soured on Willie Sneed, and if the coaching staff and his teammates have soured on him and he can't get on the field, what good is he? He may be a great route runner with great hands, but if he's not playing football, how the hell are we supposed to even appreciate any of his skills? We can't. It's great that he's on the Saints. This sucks that he's on the sidelines. You can play for the Saints, and that's great. But if you're on the sidelines for the Saints, it's the same as being on the sidelines for any other team in the NFL. How about you? Oh, boy. Let me guess. 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 Not- think back to the rookies that you liked heading into this season. Do it. Hmm. Let me think. Is it Alvin Kamara? You're goddamn right it is. And you know what? <laughs> the battles I went through. Alvin! I went to war for Alvin Kamara to defend the usage in college, and it's nice to see him being used the way that he should be in this backfield. Man, 20 receptions, 20 receptions already. (laughs) Guys on pace for 80 catches this year. Five point. We talked about Alvin Kamara potentially being better than Christian McCaffrey in fantasy football because Kamara landed on the Saints, and this is the ideal situation for a satellite back. The Saints have not had a talented satellite back since Reggie Bush. No quarterback utilizes the running backs in the passing game as well as Drew Brees. So when you have a running back with great route running and pass catching skills, great hands, electric in space, all the things we want, incredible burst score on playerprofiler.com, you put that player, that archetype, that skill set in that New Orleans Saints satellite back role, no one should be surprised when he outscores Christian McCaffrey in fantasy football. Just like no one should be surprised when Devin Funchess outscores Kelvin Benjamin in fantasy football because 
Devin Funches is way up and Kelvin Benjamin is way down. All right. And if you have Kelvin Benjamin ranked ahead of Devin Funches on your Dynasty League rankings, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> on to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because you asked for rapid fire. I'm giving you rapid fire, Nate! I'm down on Chris Godwin. If you can't supplant Adam Humphreys of all players in your rookie season, that is a red flag. I needed Chris Godwin to be a more heavily used asset in year one to ally my concerns about his ability to produce next to Mike Evans because he's not particularly big. He's 6'1", 209. He looked great in college, but he wasn't a dominant mega producer. 34.9% dominator rating is 66th percentile. He's a great athlete, but he's not in the 90th percentile in any given workout metric. So he's a good, not great wide receiver who needed to demonstrate some of that je ne sais quoi factor that we were treated to by Dalvin Cook. I was hoping to get treated to some je ne sais quoi from Chris Godwin, and if he's not on the field, I can't see it. Instead, I'm watching Adam Humphreys run around out there and do the bare minimum with a 20% target share. I was going to say, who's your guy? Who's your guy? Who's your guy? Well, I was going to bring up Adam Humphreys. Here's the thing. Of course you were. Of course you were. Of course you were. Of course you were. You would bring up Adam Humphreys, wouldn't you? You must be a listener of the show because last year, do you remember saying last year we were talking about Adam Humphreys and I noted that he had 83 targets and you said that is the highest target rate you will ever see in your career. Ever. 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 I've got got bad news for you, Matt. Through three games, not including the game being played as we're recording this episode, Adam Humphreys has been targeted 20 times. That's 6.6 a game. He is on pace for 106 targets on the year while, while our guy, Chris Godwin, has five total targets on the year. Five total targets. Oh, God. Feels like one of those medieval torture devices. Which one? Let's move on to the Arizona Cardinals. Oh, God. Guess who's up? Jay Brown. Guess who's down? Jay Brown. All <laughs> right. You might want to distinguish. No, the joke is we're not going to distinguish Jay Brown from Jay Brown. The joke is we say Jay Brown up and we say Jay Brown down. We never tell the audience which Jay Browns we're talking about because they need to pay attention. We've been talking about Jerron Brown and how he's wildly underrated and how John Brown, with his sickle cell trait, cannot stay healthy and now has been relegated to third receiver if he can hold off J.J. Nelson. But I'm not going to give the listeners the luxury of hearing yet another opinion on J. Brown versus J. Brown specifying Jerron Brown as the up and John Brown as the down unless they listen all the way through and get the take in the outtakes. That's fair. That's fair. That's what I do. Show contempt for the audience at every turn. (laughs) I get Los Angeles Rams up. Cooper Cup. Cooper Cup is up. Cup is up. He's a corny motherfucker, but he's good at football, and I just have to eat it. San Francisco 49ers. I don't care who you like or dislike on the Rams. You can say Todd Gurley's way up. Oh, yeah. Gurley's way up. Because Todd Gurley's amazing. Todd Gurley is who we thought he was. Todd Gurley is who we thought he was. San Francisco 49ers. And you know who's down. You know who's down. 
on the San Francisco 49ers. You know who's down. Your man is down. Oh, we thought he was going to break out this year. Oh, the starting tight end for the San Francisco 49ers. It doesn't pay dividends. Tethered tethered to Kyle Shanahan. Oh, Kyle Shanahan's a tight end whisperer. You put an athletic tight end like George Kittle, who was a dominant college producer on a relative basis. Pair him with Kyle Shanahan. Oh, oh. He'll be a dynasty asset. He'll be a redraft asset. Get George Kittle at all costs. <laughs> and he's a rookie tight end. Yeah, we got to give him some time still, but I agree. It's a- We're moving on to the Seahawks. Hold on. Can we at least say that Carlos Hyde has been phenomenal? Can, that, can we say that? No, Carlos, you're right. No, you're right about that. I'm glad you interrupted Carlos Hyde is incredible. Carlos Hyde went from overrated, went from underrated to overrated to underrated again. (laughs) This year, he's been underrated. But we have him this week as a top seven option, projected to score 17.62 fantasy points on playerprofiler.com's weekly player rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. Carlos Hyde looks good. Why? Because just like last year, he's been incredibly elusive. 22% juke rate for a player who weighs 230 pounds. He's just very nimble and yet powerful for a man of his size. And he already has 22 targets. 5.5 targets per game, Nate. Mm. The Kyle Shanahan effect is paying dividends for Carlos Hyde. Or Carlos Hyde's simply been great in all phases his entire career. He's just been hurt and trapped behind the San Francisco 49ers offensive line with one of the least creative offensive masterminds in the history of the NFL, Chip Kelly. Now, finally, Carlos Hyde is operating within a contemporary offense with a real offensive coordinator who knows what he's doing, that knows this isn't the Pac-10, that knows that, that who knows they're facing NFL defenses, not Pac-10 defenses on a weekly basis. No surprise, Carlos Hyde going out and scoring 17.5 fantasy points per game. That's just what Carlos Hyde does. We mentioned that he was highly undervalued in Dynasty Leagues. Get Carlos Hyde as your RB2 in Dynasty startups, and it's paying off massively right now what about your seattle seahawks oh my gosh the seattle seahawks number one i just want to say that despite the people that are way down on jimmy graham he is on pace to break 100 targets like we said receptions are a little low uh on this offense for me the player that's up despite the injury is chris carson he looked awesome he moved past eddie lacy moved past thomas rawls who was hurt once again cj Procise hurt once again this is a cursed backfield i think seattle really liked what they awesome. saw from carson and I don't think that they're going to invest too heavily in a running back next year, likely third round at the earliest, I think, if they go for a back. So Carson will definitely maintain his role in the mix. So I'm saying Carson is up despite the injury, and I think it's a buy-low opportunity considering that Eddie Lacy on a one-year deal is probably going to show out a little bit. Seattle probably will not re-sign him. You think, Nate? You think Eddie Lacy's not getting re-signed? You think Seattle might not offer Eddie Lacy an extension? <laughs> Yeah, Eddie Lacy is down. Remember the parallels drawn between Eddie Lacy and Marshawn Lynch when he arrived in Seattle? He just needed a change of scenery like Marshawn Lynch. (laughs) And what did we say? We said it defies rational thought. It challenges suspension of disbelief to come to the conclusion 
that a 250-pound running back could actually be elusive because that was the analysis coming from the people at Pro Football Focus. And we snickered at that analysis. We snickered at that analysis, Nate. I, I get it. It's a food reference and he's fat. We snickered. Oh, no, we got it. We snickered. Come on. Laugh. <laughs> I'm not. It's okay. He, you can laugh at that. You can laugh at that. It's okay. P90X didn't work twice. It's not body shaming because these are professional athletes and exceptional cardiovascular conditioning is a requirement of the profession. Eddie Lacy didn't have that. Marshawn Lynch did. Eddie Lacy was doomed. We knew it. Thomas Rawls, doomed. Just a guy. Apparently, CJ Procise, doomed because he can't stay active for more than two games in a row before he gets hurt. Another snake-bitten running back that we've loved, CJ Procise. He's way down. In fact, you could argue that our dynasty rankings, because we were already so low on Eddie Lacy coming into the season, you could argue that CJ Procise has fallen further in the dynasty rankings than Eddie Lacy this season. And be sure to check out the dynasty rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. But you're right. The player that's moved up the most by far and away, crushing the field. (laughs) It's a guy who looks like a grown man at age 22. He looks like he's lived. And he looks like he could crush my face if he needed to. Chris Carson is a beast. even talking about the right conference right now this is too much all right i don't know what this music takes or grilling takes are so i'm just gonna we're gonna ride with it <clears throat> what's up everybody welcome to the sonic truth dynasty podcast i'm your host nate list you can find me on twitter at an outraged you and with me as always is mr matt kelly i would rather have cooper cup than chris godwin at this point moncrief's thing is one he's never become the player that we expected him to but two He's missed a lot of time with Andrew Luck. Luck has missed so many games. and He's the same age as Cooper Cup. He's actually a little bit younger. But Cooper Cup's been a lot more productive. He's tethered to Goff for the long term, and he's Goff's number one option. If Sure, if T.Y. Hilton goes down, then we can have an argument. But so far, Cooper Cup's the target hog and the number one receiver for Jared Goff. Dante Moncrief, we have a much bigger sample size, and it's not impressive. He's not heavily targeted, number one. But the other thing is... That's an indictment of Dante Moncrief. Well, kind of. They should be able to facilitate... What do you mean, kind of? No, not facilitate. That's the same argument you would give for holding out hope for Quarterall Patterson. 
It's not like Moncrief is an inefficient playmaker or anything like that. It I mean, he was very inefficient last year, except for the red zone targets. Listen, I like Dante Moncrief. You're barking up the wrong tree, Shaggy. I have Dante Moncrief in my top 40 in Dynasty. Not many people do. He has no quarterback, and he's averaging 17.8 yards per reception. You're talking to the wrong guy. You're arguing with the wrong person. I like Dante Moncrief. I have him ahead of Sterling Shepard. Most people do not. I have him ahead of Kelvin Benjamin. Most people do not. So I like Dante Moncrief. I have him right there with the Tyrell Williamses. I think they're very similar players. He and Tyrell Williams are very similar. I like Moncrief so much, I have him in the top 40, even though our lifetime value formula discounts near-term production. And he's technically never been a big-time fantasy producer. So don't come at me. Come at you. With Dante Moncrief analysis as if I'm not a lover of Dante Moncrief. I'm Mr. Moncrief. Come at you. Come at you. Come at you. There's a clip on YouTube called Dante Moncrief All Systems Go. And it's just rocket ship sounds. So get out of here accusing me of not being enthusiastic enough about Dante Moncrief. That's blasphemy. I won't hear it. I think the problem is that you're not giving him the elite quarterback injury discount. Antonio Brown with anybody but Big Ben, horrible. He had a great Martavis Bryant-esque contested touchdown catch where he did his best Randy Moss, Martavis Bryant impression. I like those plays. There's some wow factor plays and some splash plays that Dante Moncrief is capable of. Let's do a show. You ran right by me and I just kept pace with you because I agree. We're not disagreeing on anything. We agree. He's the Jarek McKinnon of wide receivers. He's been snake bit on multiple levels. And he has a great athletic profile. He's very productive at a young age at Mississippi. And there's no reason to think that he can't be productive tethered to Andrew Luck. There are plenty of dynasty analysts that are largely dismissive of Dante Moncrief. I think he's a punchline to a lot of people. You know that. I love Dante Moncrief. All I'm saying is if Dante Moncrief was in Devontae Adams' spot, just imagine if he was with Green Bay. Why do you play the, the unfalsifiable hypothetical that no one can prove or disprove and it helps no one? It's the least helpful conversation ever because we'll never know what he would be in the Aaron Rodgers offense. I think he would be very productive. I think he'd be better than Devontae Adams. All I can say is what I say all the time, which you have never heard me say, and you claim that I don't say on this show, but I think I say it all the time. I'm going to say it again, that if I were starting a franchise today, you know that preface. Never heard this before. I would absolutely draft Dante Moncrief over Devontae Adams. But most people in fantasy football community believe in a vacuum Devontae Adams is better because they cannot untether Devontae Adams from Aaron Rodgers in their mind's eye. We can. We're more imaginative, you and I. I there's nothing to add to that. It was beautifully illustrated. I'm a big fan of Dante Moncrief. Dude, he's a stud. I just... That offense is freaking terrible. Freaking terrible. Freaking terrible. And we should do a show. So many people, you know, running victory laps in my face, waving the checkered flag in my face on Deshaun Watson, insisting that I take the L, forcing me to take the L. They have me down in an MMA hold on the mat, insisting that I take the L and I tap out, and I will not tap out. I will not tap out. I am tapping out with Cooper Cup. You hear that? 
That's me tapping out. Tapping out. Tapping out on Cooper Cup. I'm out on Cooper Cup. Hate. I'm all about the Cooper Cup love. He is a cornball. He is the cheesiest motherfucker in the league. And that's okay. It's okay to be corny and score touchdowns. There's nothing I can do about that. It's completely irrational to continue to deride a player and criticize him after he's proving week in, week out that he can absorb heavy targets, command target share, be efficient, and then just to criticize him because he's corny. Eventually, that rings hollow, and you need to come to terms with his greatness, and I am. I am. He's one of the best rookies in this class, so I'm wrong. Because he's done it enough times, repeated the process over and over again. It's not one game. It's not two games. It's now three out of four productive games. So he's continuing to repeat it against different defensive styles and, and different quality of secondary and opposing cornerback. And so he's continuing to prove himself week in, week out. Unlike Deshaun Watson, who put up some video game numbers against the two worst pass defenses in the league. Better. Yeah, our boy Ryan was like, hey, man, next time you do an episode, you're going to have to ask Matt Kelly about Deshaun Watson. Does he still think he needs to play in the CFL? Yeah, I have a message for your friend Ryan. Fuck you. Every day that goes by, I become perpetually more stunned by the level of hater that is within every human being. Because for every correct opinion I've had, I am inundated, drowning in the ex-post-facto, playing-the-result Deshaun Watson enthusiasts. They revel in the wrongness. That is America, right there. Well, to be fair, you did pretty much don like an American flag uniform and go to the top of a hill with a Gatling gun and just rain fire on Deshaun Watson. You do remember Vince Young having some good games in his rookie year, remember? You remember the 400-yard game put up by Joey Harrington or the multiple 400-yard games posted by Chad Henney? How about the six-touchdown game by Matt Flynn? Yes, we agree on the point you're making, just like people wrote Jared Goff off last year after a terrible year. It can go the other way, too. Against the Titans and the Patriots? G-T... Wait. G-F-T-O-H. G-T-F-O-H. 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 But not as overrated as the band Train. You can't praise his arm strengths. You have to praise his touch, right? Such a great touch, great feel, because it's clear that the ball has no velocity. Deep burn. You think Seattle might not offer Eddie Lacy an extension? (laughs) Yeah, Eddie Lacy is down. We snickered at that analysis, Nate. The P90X didn't work twice. He looks like he's lived. He looks like he could crush my face if he needed to. Wait, there's an extra I've been in there. Oh, oh, little Phil Collins trickery. Motherfuckers, 1.9 billion views. Paul Perkins. (laughs) We told you so. (laughs) Was that a fart noise? That was a fart noise. (laughs) Hey, it's Paul Perkins. What's up, man? Hey, it's Paul Perkins. What's up, man? Hey, it's Paul Perkins. What's up, man? Sublime Barkley. That's what I call him. 
Damn right it's Nelson Aguilar. You know what? Yeah! <laughs> Figuratively, Kirk Cousins down. Samaj P. Ryan down. Rob Kelly down. Terrell Pryor down. Josh Doxson way down. Jamison Crowder way down. Jordan Reed down. The only player who's up is Chris Thompson. So you have seven down players, one up player. He's NFC Deion Lewis with working knees. He's up like an erect penis. So he's down butt. You have him down butt. He's down butt. Again, Kim Jong-il. Don't get any ideas. He's up like an erect penis. The defender reached up and grabbed his schlong and just dragged him to the ground by his schlong. He's up like an erect penis. Nate, Nate, Nate. Let me say that again. Gotta have your head on a swivel. Eric Ebron. Might need a wet wipe. He slipped. <laughs> he slipped. He slipped from top ten to zero. Aaron Jones. Oh, Aaron Jones. Oh, it's gonna happen. Let Aaron Jones run. 2014 Julio Jones is not walking through that door. This feels like one of those medieval torture devices. Which one? I'm giving you rapid fire, Nate! Elvin! Get George Kittle at all costs. (laughs) (laughs) And he's a rookie tight end. Do me a favor. Do me a favor right now. Just send him five of the making a bicep muscle arm emojis. Oh, speaking of doing well, looks like Doug Martin's good. Yeah, Doug Martin seems to be back. If the Sonic Truth audience finds out that I'm tanking in a league, oh my God, my credibility's dead. No no one's going to listen to this show ever again. Yeah, you may as well go to uh, Under the Helmet, right? (laughs) Yeah. I was like, under the helmet, here I come, except. (laughs) Chris Carson is a beast. And he had no idea that you were lurking with a flamethrower. Yeah, you may as well go to uh, Under the Helmet, right?